Welcome back to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. It's been a while since we've been on air. Last we interviewed Karen Perlman about her book, Cutting Rhythms. But today we have Sam Kaufman, author of the book, Avid Editing, published by Focal Press. Sam is the director and editor of many documentaries, including Living with Slim and South Africa, Building a Democracy. He's also an associate professor in film at Boston University, and he recently returned from Rwanda as a Fulbright specialist in teaching film at the National University. First, let me thank you for allowing me to interview you. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks. Can you tell me, how did you get into film? <laughs> uh, you know, um, it was back in, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm kind of on the older side. And so, you know, it's back in the 70s. And, uh, you know, I didn't want a desk job. And, you know, I bummed around and I'd been a garbage collector and I'd driven a truck. And, you know, this was after my undergraduate days. And, uh, and then, you know, all of a sudden I, I like to write and you know, I like film, and so I you know, went to grad school, got a degree, and started making movies. Now, you do a lot of documentaries. That's right. What documentaries influence the way you edit? I, I, you know, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I don't think documentaries really influence the way I edit as much as narrative films influence the way I edit, you know, documentaries. I mean, you know, I, I think that, you know, the key to any film is, is that it ha- tell a story. And, and whether you're cutting a narrative film or a documentary film, it's all about you know, what propels the story? How can you get that that audience to be really focused and attentive to what's going on and can't wait for the next thing and create tension? And, and so I don't really so, sort of see, you know, any particular... I mean, I, I think I've been more influenced by narrative filmmaking, edit, editing, than, and, and applying that to all forms of editing rather than mm-hmm. sort of saying, oh, you know, thin blue line or something like that. Help me think of it as of how to edit documentaries. Just to jump to your book, how did you go about structuring the book that you wrote on avid editing so that it stood out and was different from other avid editing books? It's funny, Gordon. It really was the first avid editing book. I know that you know, you're know you thinking about you know the newest edition, which is the mm-hmm. fourth edition. But I first wrote this in 1999 when I wrote the first edition. And, and there wasn't a book out there. So all there was w- w- were these manuals. And, the, you know, the way a manual works is that it gives you a lot of information, but it's not structured in the way – it doesn't give you that information when you need it. It's just all there. And so it might start with importing. And, you know, that's crazy. No one needs to import if, if they don't know how to, to, to capture. So, mm-hmm. um, so basically, I, I was teaching some editing classes at the time, and I was really frustrated because – you know, my students had no materials, and I'd be Xeroxing things and photocopying things, and I said, you know, this is crazy. Now, let me take my notes, and then the way I structure a class, and let me put that in the book form. And I, I went to Focal Press, and, you know, they really like the idea that when teachers who teach a subject write a book about the subject, they find it's often more um, interesting for a student audience because they're thinking about a student audience. So, so they like the idea of the book, and so I really structured it around... You know, every week was that I taught the class was a chapter in the book almost. What's your approach to teaching Avid to uh, new students? Well, you know, I, I like to do, you know, two things. I like to teach the techniques of how, how to use the Avid, but I also like to show clips from films that I think, um, you know, illustrate editing concepts. So, you know, when I'm showing them trimming, you know, I, I basically, and and, and dual roller trimming. Well, dual roller trimming is something that you really use most often when you're creating sound overlaps or, or, or you know, split edits. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'll, I'll show dialogue scenes. I'll say something from, like, a scene from The Departed or, you know, The French Connection or, you know, and say, okay, how many of these are straight cuts? How many of these are L-cuts? And why do they use an L-cut here instead of a straight cut? So, so it's a combination. When I teach a class, it's a combination of, you know, a watching films um, and then, you know, while I'm talking about the technique. So it's not just, you know, you push this button, but sort of why do you push the button? It's an interesting blend because not many people do that with the technology. There's so many schools that just do technology now. Right. No, I think so. I mean, I think it makes the students, you know, I'm teaching at a university and it's not just a, it's not a trade school by any means. Mm-hmm. And so we really are, are hoping that they're, they're exercising their, their brain and their thinking process rather than just you know, sort of rote memorization. So, um, but when but when I teach Avid, I mean, I really think that a lot of people think it's, you know, Avid's a very complicated piece of software, but I, I really don't find it that way. I mean, I did, but I did in the beginning because because there wasn't a book that, that walked me through how to do it. I think I don't just say, do this. I say, and here's why to do this in the book. So it's, you know, I mean, I think that the reader feedback that I get is that, you know, this book doesn't just tell you how to do it, but it tells you when you're going to use it and why you're going to use it. In your first chapter, you actually talk about what the editor does or what is the job of the editor. And you talk about how editors formerly had a very specific job, but now we handle several jobs, color correction, titles, right. small effects. How do you think this is a, has affected film editing? I started when there was no digital editing. I mean, I cut on a steam back and a chem and a moviola and you know, I used, I, when I went to do a sound mix, I went to a sound mixing facility. And when I did titles, I went to a title. So so I know that now, you know, you, you as an editor, you know, when someone hires you or when you sit down to do an editing job, you know, you're looked upon to do everything. And there's a lot of things to learn and a lot of things on your plate and, and a lot of responsibility. On the one hand, I think it gives you a tremendous amount of power because, you know, you can make it just right. But by the same token, I mean, it's it's nice to have, to be able to lean on someone else. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's kind of hard for, the, for editors these days because they don't have that, you know, that sort of team approach to finishing the film. It's more like, you know, you cut it fine, but now you've got to finish it, you've got to polish it, you've got to do all these different things to, to all these different formats that are needed. And I think it, you know, it's, it's a lot of pressure on an editor today to, to be, you know, keep up with technology where in the old days you didn't have to deal with technology. You didn't have to deal with the latest technology because the technology really didn't change that much. And where it did change was in the, was in the finishing, and that's where someone else took over. It's funny that you would say that because I always think of doing sound effects when we had film, and it was uh, on Meg, and you'd have to send the sound out, and it would take a day or two to get back. Right. And, you know, nowadays it's you click a button and it's done. So I mean, I do also think that one of the problems with editing today is that I do think sometimes it's not only too fast, but it's almost too easy. That you know, students think that because they can make a cut and they do it and they push the button, it's a good cut. Whereas, you know, in the old days when people were working on a steam deck or, you know, a flatbed, when you made that cut, you, you better be a good cut because it's really, it's hard to undo that cut. So, so you thought about it. Now, why here? Whereas now I think students just get cut happy and there's no rhythm they, they lose a rhythm and they just you know they're used to hitting that splice or override you know they, they don't really sort of think about the impact that it has and then they get to the end of their the project and the end of their timeline and boy you know it's it's they kind of lost control of this train because you know they were just kind of you know cutting as they went along rather than taking time 
you know, to make sure it made sense in the overall scheme of the thing because it's so easy to make a cut now. I mean, if you have 500 cuts, boy, it's hard to undo 500 decisions. That brings up an interesting point in that how do you see teaching of the original film? So like when you were teaching students how to cut on actual film, how do you see that differs from now teaching the technology? That is one thing that, that, uh, that is a lot easier is that, <laughs> I mean, I, this is where... On, as a teacher, it is so much easier to teach good editing than it, than it was in the old days because now if a student comes in with a project, you know, I can duplicate their, their sequence and say, okay, well, let's try some different things. You know, what if we made the cut here as opposed to here? And, you know, so we can make those things, evaluate if it's improved, and if we're not happy with the changes, we can go back. Whereas, whereas when you were on a, a Steenbeck or a Chem, you know, you basically could talk theory, but you couldn't make those changes right there. And so, and a lot of times, believe it or not, when you're teaching a class, you know, you'd be sitting at the flatbed and your students would be behind you and they're basically be looking at the back of your head or your shoulders, you know, to see what you were doing. And then you turn around and explain it. Whereas now, you know, I have a monitor, a video projector, and I can show them what I'm doing and they can see what I'm doing. And then we can hit a button and then hit play and see the results. So, you know, I think in terms of teaching editing, I think that, you know, we're lightly years ahead of where we were before we had digital editing. You produced a film called Massacre in uh, Morambi. At Morambi, yeah. Yeah. Um, now, it has an interesting story structure to it where it looks back at the West. How did you come up with the structure for this film? Well, you know, I was, I had a Fulbright and I was teaching, helping to start a kind of a video production program at the National U University of Rwanda. And, you know, while I was there, I was teaching, you know, like four hours a day, five days a week. And so I was really, really busy and didn't have much time to kind of see what was, you know, around. But one weekend, you know, I asked some of my students, you know, what's the thing that I should see in this area? Because where the university is, it's, it's near to Burundi. Then, it, you know, it's a couple hours south of the capital, Kigali. So, you know, it's a pretty small town. Well, you know, the closest sort of thing to see was this genocide memorial called... Um, at, at a town called uh, Morambi. And so, you know, one Saturday I hired a cab to take me there and I saw this and I really was just sort of blown away by what I saw, you know, some of the images that are in the film. And so, the, you know, I I wrote the narration to the film as soon as I got into my back to my hotel. I mean, I just sat down and wrote the, the narration. I was sick of who I was as a citizen of the West, you know, sickened by, you know, Bill Clinton's, prom, you know, lies, saying, you know, if I'd only knew, known, when he, in fact, he knew what was going on. Mm -hmm. So so I wrote the narration, and then, then it was a matter of saying, okay, you know, it's the simplest of, of documentary editing techniques in a way. You have the narration, now what image goes with it? And, of course, that's a big trap because most problems that's, that you get into when you're an editor is, is becoming, you know, too literal in what you're showing, that you're, not, you're showing this, the same thing as you're saying. So, so here, the, the real challenge was to find really compelling images that reinforced, you know, the narration, which is, you know, what we all do as editors half the time when we have a, you know, a, a job that we're working on a documentary. So, so you know, that was a challenge to really come up with images that, that underscored the words in a really hopefully profound and compelling way. And, and of course, I had, you know, I then went back and filmed the, the memorial and, and, you know, I... I had some of the most powerful footage that, that you could get. So it was really, and then, you know, music is a big part of it. You know, what music do you use that goes along with it? And so, 
you know, it's it's a five minute film, but I swear it probably took me longer to edit than than some of the hour long things I've done. Remind me a lot of Night and Fog and um, Shake Hands with the Devil. Well, know certainly, you... you know, Night and Fog was a, was and is a, a film that was a, is very important to me. It's one of the films, the first documentaries I saw as a young person, and uh, so you know, and I'm a big fan of Alan Ornay, his the films that he's made, um, you know, his, his sense of you know, his, his idea of, of, of memory is this, is this very central part to, to who we are. And so, so yeah, I mean, there are a lot of reasons that the narrator is, speaks French, but certainly, you know, well, one is that, 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 that you know, the French are, are basically unindicted co-conspirators in the genocide, but the other, you know, another reason is how powerful I felt the narration was in Night and Fog mm-hmm. in French. <laughs> so, yeah. with documentaries you end up in the post with lots of footage how do you go about getting started on your docs and cutting them down you know you you got to have a good visual memory in a sense you know you can have all the notes in the world but you know unless you can remember a shot and say oh yeah that you know so i think it's you know you got to spend a lot of time you know looking at the footage now you know one of the things oftentimes i'm shooting the, the film myself so I know I have the fact of what what I hoped it looked like when I shot it, what it looked like when I look at the at the dailies or the rushes, and then you know what it looks like when I start linking my my tr- transcript to it, and and then you know saying hey you know let me try this here, let me try this here. Um, so I think part of it is having a you know my strength is in in seeing things more <laughs> more more of a visual person I think than a, than an auditory person. No, uh, you know a lot of times you're also you're a director and editor and sometimes even producer. Right. So when you're when you're in the editing room, how do you separate yourself from the footage to get a fresh approach? Do you bring other people in to view it or You know, I mean I think that the film that uh, one of the films I'm most proudest of is this a film called Living with Slim. It's about kids who have AIDS and you know it's used all over the world by organizations and it's won a lot of awards and um it's a 28 minute film about you know kids in uganda who you know got aids through mother-to-child transmission and they're basically the struggles uh as you know kids trying to survive in a world where kids won't play with them and the teachers send them home and you know that and they're so honest and what happens is when you know when you're you know you're you're shooting something like that you know of course you think you know what you want to do, but unless you bring an audience in, you really have no idea. And I was really blessed that, that I could not only shoot that film there, but I edited it there. So I could bring people in who could help me not only with the language, but, you know, is this working? You know, is this the experience? You know, do you buy this? And so I, I held a lot of screenings. I often hold a lot of screenings to get to get feedback because, you know, you're working in a vacuum and you think it's working, but, I mean, you know, all of a sudden you find out it's not working at all. Now, but then the detective work comes in. You know, usually your audience can't tell you why it isn't working. They're just lost, or they're confused, or they're not getting it, or they're bored, or whatever. So, now that's where, you, you know, my job as the editor, or your job as the editor, is to say, okay, now I've got a problem here, now how do I fix it? And, you know, a lot of times it's it's not really what they say it is. It's something that happened to me. It's always something that's happened beforehand, that I haven't set this up properly, or I, I left something out, or the section that's just too long and they just can't, they're not ready for this. Or, you know, so, so that's, you know, the diagnostic skill is, you know, has to come in once you've, your audience has helped you identify problems. Many of your films have very uh, intense social issues that you examine. How do you 
approach these films to keep a clear and objective view without allowing the footage to, I guess, a lot of them are very intense content. How do you keep that from affecting you and how you edit in a negative way? I'm glad you said in a negative way because I do think that, it, you know, I, I want that. I want to affect me. I want to be, mm-hmm. be angry. I want to have emotion. I mean, I, I, I don't, I try to be fair but you know, I'm in those films. I'm trying. I have a point of view, and I'm bringing that point of view out. I don't twist the facts. I don't change what's happening. But I'm definitely an ag- advocate for, you know, the, the people in my film. So it's not journalism. I mean, I use the, the same sort of ethical precepts that the journalism might have. But I don't try for for balance, you know, because I don't think that there really is balance. You know, I mean, I, I think that, that that makes for a very uninteresting film. Um, it's fair. But, but it's not necessarily balanced because I have a point of view. Otherwise, I wouldn't have made the film. There's, you know, it's too much money, too much work, too much, mm-hmm. too much disappointment. So, you know, you gotta, you gotta have a real sort of passion for this, for, for the subject matter. Or, you know, it can't just be, you know, I think that's the difference between independent filmmakers and people who do, who do it, um, you know, for, on staff or for a network or, or whatever. Is that, you know, to them, it's another story and another. Part of getting the paycheck for those, but for those you know, independent documentary filmmakers, it's it's uh, you know it's their life for that time. When you enter into a, an edit or into a documentary, uh-huh. a lot of times you you have an intended or anticipated end result. So if you're following someone, they're going to go somewhere. But uh-huh. because it's a documentary, a lot of times things can change on the fly. And how do you use these in post to improve the story or create a, a new structure? Well, I, I, you know, I don't think that you, re- you really ever know where your your characters are going to take you when you're doing a documentary. I mean, I, I don't think that you do have an intended ending. You have a passion for that person or, or, the, or the issue that they're facing. And I think that, so to me, you know, part of, part of you know, the, the film's success a lot of times depends on, you know, where that, that person takes you. And I've, I've made films that have been just, you know, I hope, thought they were going to go great, and they just didn't because the subject matter just wasn't there and and all the editing tricks that I and friends could think of just you know couldn't pull it out so Mm -hmm. good editing you know obviously is critical but you got to have the subject matter or else I mean I'm better editors out there than I am that could do it but but for me you know unless I unless I end up with really good material you know as this old saying goes if it's not on the page it's not on the stage well if, you know, mm-hmm. if it's not in the in the footage i don't it's really hard i mean i've, I've definitely made lousy films because there wasn't enough life in, in mm-hmm. what i captured or what the people captured now i have one last question for you and i ask this of everyone i interview what is your favorite guilty pleasure film uh i guess uh school of rock yeah you know i mean it's like you know when you're teaching an academic institution mm-hmm. You know, people don't expect, you know, you wouldn't want to necessarily admit it. But I actually use, I there's this, have you seen the film, Gordon? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, there's this, you know, the scene where he introduces the class to the concept of the band and they raise their hands, I can sing, and you know that scene? And, yeah. And, and yeah. he says, you're going to do this. and you, you know, analyze that scene. I mean, it's shot from, you know, 15 different camera positions. <clears throat> and... And then it's those 15 positions are, are, are then cut 45, they're 45 cuts to make mm-hmm. that scene. And, you know, one of the an- analogies, and I, I talk about it in my book that I use when I'm teaching students about filmmaking and editing, is that, 
you know, you go to the theater and you sit there in the theater and you, you know, you watch a play and, and you're like, man, you know, I wish I could get closer. I wish I could get further back. I'm stuck in the seat. Well, when you make a film, you know, your job is to put the, you know, the, the audience in the best seat in the house for that action. So, you know, if it's a kiss, they want to be in the front row. If, if it's a sword fight, they want to be back further to see the thing. So, <laughs> so that scene, you know, the, the, the director did a really nice job of finding, you know, the, the best places to put the camera for that action. And then the editor said, okay, now when, when is the audience want to move to the next seat? And you look at that scene and it's beautifully edited and it really, and it's beautifully shot. And it, the whole thing is really like, wow, what a great scene. And it's, you know, it's all about, you know, finding the best seat in the house. So the editor put you where you wanted to be to watch what was going on. So, so I not only like that film a lot, but I actually, I'm not ashamed to admit that I use that in my class. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for allowing me to interview you. Yeah, and sure. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Well, that's our show for today. I'd like to thank Sam Kaufman for joining me this week. I'd also like to thank Lauren Woodcock, my producer. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.